there was a study done, and it was posted um, on a, on a web, web page called The Science About Us. And the article was entitled, 17 Things We Know About Forgiveness. Now, it wasn't a theological uh, article at all. It was about science. And one of the things that the science and the research showed is how animals in the animal kingdom, how they forgive. And so it was a study that looked at primates and all kinds of other animals. And it, it looked at how they would respond to each other after moments of conflict or after moments of aggression. So for example, they might have looked at uh, two gorillas and as there was conflict between them afterwards, was there ever hugging or other signs of reconciliation? What they discovered was this. Out of all of the animals they studied, there was only one species that showed no signs of forgiveness or reconciliation whatsoever, and it was cats, <laughs> which, which tells us something that many of us have probably inherently known since we were young, that cats are evil. I mean, that's, <laughs> I'm just, I'm kidding, kind of. Uh, maybe, maybe cats just understand how hard forgiveness is, because when someone has wronged us, for us to be able to, to forgive and let that go is, is difficult. But in reality, all of the things that we've been talking about in this New Life in Christ series, they are difficult. Confession, I, I don't know about you, but it, it is difficult for me to admit that I'm wrong. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. Ask my kids, they'll tell you. It's difficult. It seems unnatural to the pride that I'm trying to kill inside of me. So confession, admitting that I'm broken is difficult. Repentance, we talked about last week, turning around 180 degrees from looking at my sin to looking at Christ. I mean, I want that, but, but there's something deep down inside of me that, that would honestly say there's still pieces of that sin that I'm drawn to and that I like. And to really turn away from it and to only chase after Jesus, to sacrifice self, is difficult. And so is forgiveness. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Matthew in a moment. I want to share a little bit of my story. You've heard stories from some of our staff, and I'll be honest with you. As we started this series, I don't recall us having a conversation where we said, hey, let's just tell our stories and how they play out in this. It just so happened that the Holy Spirit led us all those directions. Some of you know my story. You've heard parts of it as I've shared it through different sermons. I grew up in a, in a home as, an, as a young child, up until five or six years old, in, an in, a, in a home with an alcoholic father. I almost said an alcoholic home, but my mother was a believer. Uh, she was not an alcoholic, but an alcoholic father. And I don't have a whole lot of memories from those early years, four years old, five years old. I really have two memories that are in my mind, in my brain, from those years. And one of those memories was being a young kid. And I remember laying in my bed at night, Seemed like it was late. I was young enough. It was probably like 8 p.m., you know. And I could hear my mom and my dad yelling and fighting someplace else in the house. And I got up out of bed and wandered down the hallway and into our formal dining room that was dark and nobody used. But when I sat in the corner of the formal dining room, I could see into the kitchen where my mom and dad were. The kitchen was lit up. The dining room was dark. They had no clue I was there. There were some saloon-style doors that separated that, that had they even looked my direction, they wouldn't have seen me. And I remember as a kid, watching, knowing my dad had been drinking, already understanding what alcoholism was at that age, I watched my dad hit my mom. That's just one of the two memories that I have. 
of being at home with my mom and dad. The second memory came shortly after that. I remember sitting in a yellow swivel seat in our, in our living room, spinning around in it, making that, that chair a toy like a kid would. I remember my mom and my dad coming and stopping the swiveling and, and getting down their knees so they could look at me face to face. And that's when they told me that they were, they were splitting up, they were divorcing. And my dad would be leaving and I'd be living with my mom. And I did that. As a single mom and a kid for a couple years later, my mom remarried. And I'll tell you a little bit of that story in a second. But I spent some of those early years living in a home with a single mom and spending an occasional weekend here or there with my dad. And I'll tell you this, my dad was never physically abusive to me. I know that my dad loved me. But there were still these difficulties as a kid because it wasn't what I dreamed it would be like or what I thought it would be like for a kid a young boy and his dad. I remember my dad would come and pick me up and I'd be going Saturday night, spending the night with him and he'd take me to church on Sunday morning and drop me off. And I remember he'd pick me up and he'd go, hey, this is our weekend. We're gonna do anything you wanna do. What do you wanna do? And I was nine at the time and we had an arcade in the mall. And I remember going, let's go to the arcade. Let's go, we'll go to the mall. And he'd go, no, 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 we're not gonna do that. What else do you wanna do? And I'd go, well, let's, how about, how about the movies? Can we go to the movies? And he'd go, ah, I don't do movies. What else do you want to do? And I remember going through the litany of things, so I just ran out of things that a nine-year-old boy would want to do. And invariably, this is how our, our Friday night ended up, me sitting on the, the stool at the bar while he played pool and got drunk with his friends. That, that was some of my childhood. And, and it sounds bad. It really, it really wasn't. I mean, there were some of those, there were some things that, that did have ramifications in my life. I remember in high school, uh, going out for the baseball team was all my, all my friends played baseball, and I got cut from the baseball team, and it was pretty much because I, th I threw like a girl, but that's because my mom taught me how to throw when I was six. I mean, it's really not fair, right? I mean, that's just the ramifications of, of that life. I remember some of those difficulties, but I remember the emotional anxiety when I'd be riding with my dad, and I told you my mom had remarried, and I ended up with two brothers two stepbrothers, that, that really that sounds foreign for me to say. I, I don't think that way. A lot of times if you hear me tell stories about my dad, I'm actually talking about my, my stepdad, but he's, he's my dad. And my brothers are my brothers. And I remember riding in the truck with my, with my biological dad, and this would happen all the time. We'd be talking, and I'd be telling a story about what happened, and I would say something like, oh, my brothers and I went and did this. And he'd be driving, he'd go, who? And it took me a while a year or so maybe to really kind of catch on, but I'd go, my brother's not. And he'd look at me and go, you don't have any brothers. And I remember the, the emotional anxiety of that. Can I even really, with my dad, tell him stories of who I am? I remember being 16. And I remember him coming to the front door. And he had a box of 1991 Fleer baseball cards. I collected sports memorabilia, still do. And he came up, and it was my birthday, and he gave it to me. And I, you know why I remember that? Because it was the first birthday or Christmas present that I ever got from him. And so, so I would say, like, I don't have a lot of maybe emotional scars. I think the Lord has just been faithful and good to me in that way. But it wasn't the easiest of childhoods. It was rocky. But I'll tell you this, as a, as a teenager, I love my dad. Even through all of that, after, I mean, right before I graduated, I remember leaving a Wednesday night midweek worship service as a student at our church. And one of our youth workers drove me over to the trailer that my dad lived in. And I went out into his, and knocked on his door, went in with the, with the sole purpose of sharing the gospel with him while that youth worker sat in the car and prayed for me. 
Because even through all of those things, there really hadn't been a seed of bitterness that had sunk in. I still wanted my dad to know Jesus in a real way. And then my sophomore year in college hit. I moved away. One of the things my dad didn't come to my high school graduation, even though he lived in the same town. The year in college, the relationship, as I got older, I began to see and understand things in a different way. And I still talked to him on a regular basis somewhat. And I remember sitting in my dorm room. My roommate, Chris, was sitting on another bed. And I called my dad and just a regular day at school. And I'm talking to him on the phone. And he says, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing great. I said, things are just busy. I've got school. And at this point, I just started a youth ministry. I'm doing youth ministry. And you know, all these different things happening. And he said this to me over the phone. He said, well, hey, don't get too busy. Because your mom was always busy. And that's why we got a divorce. And I snapped. I mean, it like, I went nuclear level five, like immediately. And I remember, I remember just, I mean, immediately started yelling into the phone. God bless my poor roommate who was, you know, wide-eyed, like, what's happened? Because he's only hearing one end of the conversation. And I started yelling back, and that, that is a lie. You got divorced because you're an alcoholic. You got divorced because you hit her. And he started yelling, and I started yelling. I mean, I don't know how long it lasted, but I remember hanging up the phone and, and thinking to myself, I am, I'm absolutely done. Because here's, here's what I thought. And I, and I believe this to this day. If you went and asked him what I was responsible for in the break in our relationship, he would have told you nothing. And I'm sure there were some things. I mean, every broken relationship has two parts, but I think he would have said nothing. He would have owned it. I, I looked at it going, I mean, I, I'm the kid. I mean, granted, I was in college at the time, but I was the child, that's the adult. And, and why, why am I in this ridiculous relationship and, and this, this fight that's going on with a grown man who doesn't know how to be a father? And I, and I, I was done, I walked away for eight years about, give or take. Didn't talk to him. Sent him an invitation to my college graduation that he didn't come to. Sent him an invitation to my seminary graduation that he didn't come to. Sent him an invitation to my wedding because I'm his only son who lived an hour away and he didn't come. And I didn't care. I really didn't. Neither here nor there for me. And then I came to First Baptist Georgetown, kind of put the story in perspective. I mean, I guess I had been here a long time, but it doesn't seem like that long ago. And we were doing youth camp with a group of students, and we went down to a Wild Week youth camp. And we had a phenomenal week at, at, at camp. And one of the things that that camp did each Wednesday night of camp is they did the Lord's Supper as a part of the worship that night. And the pastor of the camp was up talking about his childhood and his broken relationship with his father. And as he moved to the end of the service where they were, all of the students were going to take the Lord's Supper, he said, hey, if, if your dad came here tonight or, or this week as a sponsor, I want you to take the Lord's Supper, you and your dad. And we had a student come up and said, hey, my relationship is broken with my dad. You're the closest thing that I have. Would you do the Lord's Supper with me? I said, sure. And as I went down front with a student, and started praying and reflecting, God began to speak. He spoke through his word, and we're going to look at a passage of scripture in a second. But here's what he said in a nutshell. 
If you're going to follow me, it's on you, it's your responsibility to be the person who seeks out reconciliation and forgiveness. And I remember that moment like, nah. <laughs> this is like a camp, camp emotional moment. Guys telling about his dad and their broken relationship. And here's a student that's asked me, he's like a father figure. This is just emotions because God would not, God would not expect me to go and reconcile that relationship because I haven't done anything wrong except call him out on the truth. And then God reminded me of Matthew 18. If you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 18. There's a parable that Jesus tells about forgiveness in verses 23 and on. I'm going to let you read that on your own this week, maybe in your home group or maybe with your family. But the passage starts in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Now, I don't know Peter's backstory. I don't know if Peter was in a relationship that he was trying to figure out how to forgive and caught some time with Jesus. And Jesus, what do you think? I do know this, though. This question that, that Peter asked was actually a question that was debated by the rabbis at the time. So Peter might have just been saying, hey, Jesus, you've got some interesting thoughts on what the other rabbis say. What would you say about this area of forgiveness? And here's what the common thought was at the time. The rabbis decided that you would forgive up to three times of intentional sin against you. And after the fourth time, if somebody sinned against you intentionally, the fourth time, you didn't have to forgive them any longer. So Peter comes and he says, Jesus, how much do I, do I forgive him? Maybe in the back of his mind, three times? And he says, as, as many as seven times? I mean, Peter's raising the bar, right? Peter's going, I mean, Jesus, Jesus says things that are different than everybody else. He tends to say things and make the other rabbis go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So I know Jesus isn't going to say three times. Wait, what do you say, Jesus, seven times? exaggerate that out. Peter might have even been with the understanding, because for a Hebrew, numbers meant things, and seven symbolized completeness. With the number so Peter might have been asking Jesus, Jesus, how often do we, do we forgive? Do I just keep going until it's done? And Jesus responds with this, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I will not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations say 70 times 7. Now, I want you to see something that's pretty interesting. If you'll flip back to Genesis chapter 4. If you go all the way back to the very beginning. I mean, we're shortly after Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And there's a passage that Jesus knew, that the rabbis knew, that the Jewish people knew. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 this passage says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilha, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Think that was on Jesus' mind? That, that, that we tend to think, and we even see it from the root of Genesis, from our own humanity, that if, if they're going to get me, 
then I'm going to get them. That if I'm going to be wrong and somebody's going to turn against me, well, I'm going to defend myself. And when Peter says to Jesus, how often should we forgive? Seven times? I believe this was on Jesus' mind. Jesus said not seven times, but 77 times. You're going you're to do the opposite of what seems natural to you because if you're going to follow me, I'm going to turn your world upside down. What Jesus is saying is this. It doesn't matter if your translation says 77 or 70 times 7 and how that was translated because the point isn't, okay, they're at 75. They've got two more and then I'm done. The point isn't, I'm coming up to 490 and then I'm done. Jesus' point was, you don't just forgive until completeness. You don't just forgive seven times. Your forgiveness is limitless and inexhaustible if you follow me. That there is never anything or any moment that comes to a point where we can do what I did when I was a sophomore and say, I'm done. You've crossed the line finally and I'm out. If we follow Christ and if we want to experience new life in Christ, not only do we have to confess, admit our sin and repent and turn from it, but when we've had people that have come into our lives and sinned against us and harmed us, we have to be able to have not just a new life in Christ for us, but forgive them so that they might be able to walk in new life in Christ as well. So what, what do we do? What do we do when you're sitting here thinking about that person at work, your neighbor whose dog keeps barking at you, whose kids keep inviting all their friends over and it's really loud, your in-laws who never really did like you, Maybe your kids, and there's been some things that have happened inside your family, and bitterness has begun to take root. Unforgiveness is starting to rest. What, what do we do when we read that Jesus says, hey, that's not an option? Forgiveness is limitless. Can, can I give you a real easy application? This is, the, this is the what we do when we walk out these doors. We go do whatever it takes to mend that relationship. For some of you, before you get to a, a small group or your life group at the next hour, or if you went earlier and before you go off to lunch, you, you may need to stop at your car and pull out the phone and make the most difficult phone call of your year to start re-engaging that relationship because you need to experience new life in Christ and you want to experience that without forgiveness after that moment at camp the conviction didn't fade even though I prayed it would go away you know God I have to do this and God kept saying yes you have to do this and the struggle was this I had so many excuses my dad lived in Rogers Texas outside of Temple at this time he didn't have a cell phone or a home phone so I couldn't call him and he worked three to four days a week down in Canyon Lake and was in Rogers the other days. So in order to reestablish this relationship and in order to move towards forgiveness with my dad, my wife and I had to get in our car and drive to Rogers on a hope and a prayer that he'd actually be home. You know how many excuses went through my mind of how inconvenient that is? And yet God said, go, and so we went. 
I'm telling you, it, it wasn't easy. We went and reestablished a relation. The first time my dad ever met my wife, we got to his house right about the sun went down, and, and he was in a mobile home, and as we drove up, all the lights were off, and we went, we went okay, that's, he's not there. And as we drove by, I saw a, a television set in the, in the window. So we stopped, put it in reverse, went up, knocked on the door. He came to the door, sun's down. He can't even see my new bride, who I've married recently, who, who you know, I'm excited for him to finally meet. And he says, hey, I'd come, in, come on in. I, I, I'd, I'd turn on the lights, but I, I don't have any electricity. And I remember thinking, you liar, the TV's on. And so I said, I said you, you don't have a battery-operated TV? And he said, no, I've got an extension cord going to the neighbor's house. I didn't believe him, but it was true. <laughs> Went out the window. I said, does your, does your neighbor know? And he said, well, he does now because he ran it over, ran over the extension cord with his lawnmower. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Amanda, meet my dad. You know, I'd love to tell you that it got easy. It didn't. Because his first and only at the time, granddaughter was born. And he didn't come see her. And as I was moving towards forgiveness, things still didn't change on his end. In fact, we drove up one day, just again, having to drive up, hope he's there. And I pull over and the mobile home's gone. It's just an empty lot. I'm like, I don't even know what to do now. Like, he doesn't have a phone. The, the house is literally gone. So we just went to the three gas stations on the highway in Rogers, Texas, and walked in and said, hey, do you know Mike Levi? Nope. Went to the second one. Do you know Mike Levi? Nope. Went to the third one. I thought, well, okay, Lord, this, this is going to be it. I mean, at this point, I'm ready to reconcile, and I'm, I'm already, I'm in the stages of forgiveness and, and moving that way, but I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. And, and I stop, and I go, do you know Mike Levi? And the lady goes, who's asking? And I said, I'm his son, Brett. Now you talk about it getting easier, harder. Here's the phone call that happened after that. She dials the number because she knows the, the number to where my dad lives. He's living with somebody else at the time. I don't know that number. He's never told me. And I hear her into the conversation. Mike, this is such and such. There's a guy here. He says he's your son. Okay. He'll be coming this way. That's <laughs> what she told me. So I want you to understand this. When we talk about forgiveness, when you walk out of here today, obedient to the Lord and go, hey, there's some relationships in my life that I have to start moving towards forgiveness. I'm going to be very honest with you. It's probably not going to be easy. It's probably going to be messy. Because forgiveness is. But that's application number one. If you've got that relationship, if we're going to become a church that is authentic and real and knows each other, exposed with where we're walking and where we're wrestling, we're, we're going to have to walk through this journey of forgiveness, not just with ourselves, but with each other and our small groups, our life groups, and things like that. And here's the other thing. If you're wrestling with forgiveness, and you're going, there's, there's just, I can't do it. I, I, undoubtedly, there's some stories out here that are way more difficult than mine, no doubt. Some of you experience things that you go, if I had your story, I could forgive, but if you had my story, you may not be able to. That's fair. But here, here's what I know. One of the reasons we may be struggling to forgive others is because we haven't really experienced forgiveness for ourselves. One of the things that helped me when I start thinking about all of the things that my 
that my father did to me. Throwing like a girl, put that here. No birthday presents, put that here. Making me feel like I couldn't talk about my real life, my family, say the words brothers or, or dad, put that here. Not showing up for a wedding, put that here. Not showing up for his grandkids, put that here. I can build this pile of wrongs that he has against me. And I'll tell you, it's a substantial pile. But the moment that I look at Christ and I look at, at the pile of, of sin that I've placed on my father, not my biological father, my heavenly father, the lustful thoughts, the disobedient actions, the words that have never should have been spoken, and I start looking at that pile, I'll tell you this, as big as this pile that my dad gave me is, the one that I've given my heavenly father is exponentially larger. And he wiped it away at the cross. Gone. Not, not put away in the closet to bring out later. Not, not when things are going to go, oh, hey, there's... Gone, separated, the psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west. Absolutely gone. And in his eyes, I am righteous. In his eyes, I'm forgiven. And far be it from me to have experienced that. In all of the things I've done, to be wiped clean, to be made right before God, to not only have heaven in my future, but to have the kingdom of God living in my heart, the Holy Spirit here now, to have all of that gone and to look at my father's small stuff and go, nope, you're going to be accountable for that. Maybe the reason why we're still holding on to it is because we haven't experienced the loss of all of our junk. Because when you realize the price that was paid by Jesus at the cross for your and my sin to be forgiven. It's intellectually and emotionally inconceivable that we could hold on to someone else's sin against us. So what do you do? Will you forgive? Will you be forgiven? Will you experience not a sermon series, but will you experience new life in Christ? Because you joined some of us in confession and repentance and forgiveness.